Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Along with surgery and chemotherapy, radiation therapy is one of the three cornerstones of cancer treatment. It is used in more than 50% of patients with cancer, both for curative and palliative purposes. While radiation therapy can be a very effective technique to kill cancer cells, it can also damage normal tissue, leading to toxicities. Numerous pharmacologic treatments have been considered and trialed to prevent and treat radiation toxicities, but not all are evidence-based. To bridge that gap, we have Dr. Divya Kandekar here to discuss accepted pharmacologic treatments for radiation therapy toxicity management. Radiation therapy is traditionally known to be one of the three cornerstones of cancer treatment, including chemotherapy and surgery. While radiation therapy is traditionally you know, managed by the radiation oncology team, uh, which is a very niche area within oncology, we are starting to see a lot more practitioners within the medical oncology area and pharmacists who are being getting more and more involved with management of radiation therapy. The main reason behind this is the management of radiation-associated toxicities. While radiation therapy comes with its own set of unique toxicities, when combined with chemotherapy, you're likely to see toxicities that are uh, additive in effect or sometimes even very unpredictable. With the advent of newer therapies like targeted therapies and immunotherapy, these interactions can be severe in some instances. So I think as part of uh, a patient's medical team, it is uh, necessary for each and every one of us to understand the basics of radiation, the basics of where these toxicities come from, and then some methods to manage these toxicities better. So for my first learning objective today, I'll be discussing the basic principles of radiation therapy in the treatment of cancer. This is going to be a very high level overview and intended for someone who has not practiced uh, in this area. For the second objective, I'll be describing the etiology and pathophysiology of these toxicities. I'll touch upon risk factors for toxicities uh, and uh, discuss you know, interactions with chemotherapy and immunotherapy. And for my last objective, I'll be identifying which pharmacologic treatments for radiation toxicity management are evidence-based. So why is this important? Whenever you're managing uh, a radiation therapy patient, you're most likely to see, you know, so all patients with cancer at some point, at least 50% of them uh, receive radiation therapy at some point. This puts the number to about 7 million patients currently in the US who have received or are currently on radiation therapy. Radiation therapy has two primary intents, so it can be curative in nature or palliative. For our disease in the initial stages, when the tumors are small in size, radiation therapy can be used as, a, as its own modality uh, in a neoadjuvant setting to prepare the patient for removal of the tumor via surgery, uh, but it can also be used in a adjunctive setting, so after surgery in more you know, advanced stages of the disease in combination with chemotherapy and other things. In a palliative setting, uh, radiation therapy can be used to relieve symptoms for the patient that's related to the cancer. So patients with tumors that are larger in size 
and those that you know press upon organs and nerves can cause a lot of pain to, to patients. So radiation therapy can help you know decrease size of these tumors. In hematological cancers, sometimes there's overcrowding of cancer cells in the bone marrow and the lymph nodes, and this can also result in a lot of pain to the patient. So radiation therapy in that setting reduces that pain. So there are two broad categories of radiation therapy. External beam radiotherapy, which I'll be referring to, EBRT is your more common modality. Uh, whenever I'm referring to radiation therapy, in today's presentation, I'm talking about EBRT. So in EBRT, the source of radiation is located outside of the patient's body and is delivered to the patient via a linear accelerator. So as I discussed, this is the more common modality. And the second one is brachytherapy, where the source of radiation is inserted inside of the patient's body in close association with the tumor, and it provides local radiation to that area. This modality has been used uh, in treatment of cancers like those of the prostate, breast, um, head and neck, and ovarian cancer. Although the efficacy of brachytherapy is comparable to uh, EBRT, just because it's an invasive pro procedure, uh, it's a little less popular. So I think to better understand uh, how technology has advanced in this area and what we are doing to manage these toxicities better, I think talking about the history a little bit will put things in perspective. So radiation therapy was discovered uh, in 1895 by Wilhelm Röntgen, and it was the same year when the first patient with cancer was treated with radiation therapy. At that time, it was noticed that a large, single large dose of radiation was leading to a lot of toxicities in these patients. So with more research, fractionation was discovered in 1906 uh, by uh, Dr. Henry Coutard. So what fractionation is, is the breakdown of a large uh, dose of radiation into smaller fraction of or doses and giving it over a period of time. This technology was applied uh, in the subsequent years, and in 1992, EBRT, uh, sorry, 1922, EBRT showed a 23% cure rate for laryngeal cancer. As you can see the timeline here, with more technological advancements, we now have the capacity to integrate CT scans and MRI scans um, into radiation, and that way we can get a very precise um, you know, we can do precise calculations on based on the size of the tumor, the depth of the tumor, and even with 4D scans, we can judge how the tumor is growing and moving and uh, try to target the tumor in our best capacity. I do want to mention whole brain radiation therapy, which kind of became a norm for treating uh, brain metastases in the 1980s. And while uh, in this modality, you know, a large amount of dose was uh, provided to the central nervous system, it was leading to a lot of toxicities, especially cognitive decline. So now we have more targeted therapies like stereotactic radiosurgery, uh, also called as gamma knife, and that's the term you might have heard. And this is also helping reduce a lot of these um, central nervous system related toxicities. So how does radiation therapy then actually damage DNA? So there are various mechanisms by which this happens. Uh, the more direct mechanism is where the high energy particles of radiation physically damage the, the sugar phosphate backbone of DNA and cause cell death. In a more indirect mechanism, these high energy particles interact with the intracellular environment that consists of water particles and uh, leads uh, or gives rise to free radicals and superoxide radicals, which then interact with DNA and cause damage. So the way the cell is built, we have some inherent DNA repair mechanisms, which then are activated to try and reverse some of this damage. 
if, this, if these uh, repair mechanisms are overwhelmed and fail, it leads to cell death. So then how do we predict which cells are you know, damaged by radiation? So this figure on the left might be familiar to you. It's that of the cell cycle. So your G1, S, and G2 phases are your initial phases of the cycle where the cells, uh, you know, the DNA material is tightly bound against each other. The cell is kind of preparing itself uh, for mitosis. But if radiation hits cells, in this phase, it usually ends up causing single strand breaks, and then these repair mechanisms remove damaged bases, and in this situation, it, it does not end up killing the cells all the time. But if the cells, uh, if radiation hits the cells when they are in their mitosis phase, where the cells are rapidly dividing, their DNA material is uncoiled, so it's more susceptible to radiation, it can cause double strand breaks, which can be lethal to the cell. So I talked about fractionation and uh, uh, the definition is basically dividing a large uh, dose of radiation into smaller fractions or doses, giving it over a period of time. So what this does, it, it, it allows uh, for a maximum number of tumor cells to enter the M phase of the cell cycle where it is most susceptible to radiation. What it also does, on the other hand, it gives more time for normal cells to heal, and that is because these cells are not as rapidly dividing, not a lot of them are in their M phase, uh, and that way reduces some of the damage to normal cells. Just as an FII, this uh, slide kind of uh, shows what a typical fractionated radiation therapy plan looks like, so you might encounter this when you're you know, looking up your patients. So the first term usually talks about the organ uh, system that's involved in radiation. The second term, in this case, intensity modulated radiation therapy is the type of radiation therapy used. 50 GRAY, so GY stands for GRAYS, which is a unit of calculating radiation. So this is the total planned dose, which is then going to be divided into 25 fractions. So essentially each fraction will be, you know, uh, two, two GRAYS of radiation. And then this is given over 35 days, just as an example, but could be also represented in weeks. So that brings us to our first audience poll question. You may either respond at pollev.com slash mayorx or text mayorx to 22333. And once you join, you can enter your options there. The question is, which phase of the cell cycle does a cancer tumor cell have to be in to cause maximum damage when treated with radiation therapy? Option A, G1 phase, B is S phase, option C, G2 phase, and D, M phase. All right, I think we have uh, enough number of answers. I think uh, pretty straightforward, um, just testing you know, your basics that we discussed on the slides before. So I, as we discussed before, you know, G1, S, and G2 phases are the ones where you know, the cell is preparing itself for replication, but the DNA material is tightly coiled, so not as sensitive to radiation, whereas in the mitosis phase, you have your rapidly dividing cells that are more sensitive to radiation. So going into talking about radiation therapy-associated toxicities. So these toxicities can typically be divided into three types. So acute toxicities, subacute, and late toxicities. Acute toxicities are those that occur about one to two weeks after an initiation of radiation therapy. They're usually characterized by inflammation uh, and affect cells that are more rapidly dividing first. So your hair follicles, your uh, layers of your skin and dermis, and also your bone marrow. And these toxicities are typically self-limiting. Your subacute toxicities, on the other hand, uh, start or start to present two to two to three months after initiation of radiation therapy. 
Radiation pneumonitis is one of the most common subacute toxicities that you might have heard of. And uh, these can also be self-limiting. Uh, they do manifest as inflammation, but you also have like an exudative process where there is edema and uh, uh, organ uh, swelling and uh, can be self-limiting if treated in a timely fashion. Your late toxicities typically present after six months after radiation therapy are characterized by a more fibrotic process, which can be typically irreversible. Your neurological toxicities are also fall in this uh, time frame and present as late toxicities. And the ones that we never want to forget about are secondary malignancies, which can present months to years after someone has been on radiation, especially for an extended period of time. So the factors impacting radiation therapy, I think the most uh, important factor is uh, tumor location. So as we know, uh, radiation in EBRT, you know, pass to pass through multiple um, levels of your like skin and soft tissues before reaching the target organs. So most of uh, the patients on radiation are going to present with some kind of dermatitis or soft tissue inflammation. But along with that, you always want to keep in mind uh, what adjacent organs might be affected. So in uh, if the site of radiation therapy is the breast, you might see pulmonary fibrosis if the lung is involved, uh, pericarditis, uh, hypothyroidism if the thyroid is affected, and thyroid cancer as well. So just as an example and for you to keep in mind that if you're you know, seeing these toxicities, uh, to put things in perspective on what organ we're trying to treat and are these toxicities expected or not. The other factors I mentioned about is concomitant uh, chemotherapy and immunotherapy. I'm going to talk about this a little more, but what I want you to take away from today's presentation is that combination therapy does not always mean dose reduction of individual agents. So when we think about our treatment plans, uh, we it's it's very like natural to think that while combining uh, these. Uh, therapies, we might have to like preemptively go down on something or some of the doses, but that is not always the situation. Sometimes we need that double action to uh, have uh, more like tumor damage. So the recommendation is to always review individual regimens. Uh, these are available on the NCCN website, uh, other sources as well. Uh, review the dosing of individual agents as well as patient-specific characteristics. So radiation sensitizers are our classic chemotherapy agents. And um, as the name suggests, they increase the sensitivity of the tumor to radiation. So I just put this slide as, your, as a reference with the mechanism of action and all the agents that have been used in the past or are currently used. But I think taxanes are some of our more classic agents today. Uh, so uh, paclitaxel and docetaxel are two that have the most evidence surrounding it. So the mechanism for that these agents is very interesting. So they stabilize the microtubules when the cells multiplying and leads to the accumulation of the cells in the G2 or M phase. And as we mentioned, you know, the M phase is most sensitive to radiation. So kind of trapping all these cells in the M phase is gonna cause a lot of uh, uh, cell damage. Uh, Irinotecan and 5-fluorouracil are the other agents that are uh, also routinely used in practice. When we talk about radiation therapy, I think one terminology that often like comes up is the abscopal effect. So the definition of abscopal effect is that uh, it's the action of radiation on other sites or other tumors in the body that are not directly exposed to radiation. The way this happens is when to, when uh, radiation therapy is you know it, it directly hits uh, the the targeted tumor. 
uh, it does kill the tumor itself, but it also sensitizes the body's immune system to recognize the antigens on these tumors, which then helps further damage not only to the directly treated tumor, but also to secondary or abscopal tumors on other, on other sites of the body. When it's combined with immunotherapy, as we know, immunotherapy basically ramps up the body's immune system and uh, creates all of these factors, cytokines, and um, helps you know, sensitize these tumors. But this effect is not only on the, the parent tumor, but also on these secondary tumors. A lot of research, a lot of trials have been done to evaluate the efficacy of combining immunotherapy with radiation therapy, but unfortunately, we don't have any solid results on like how this exactly acts or uh, if this would be a viable option in the future. What we do want to know at this point is it can lead to unpredictable responses and then as far as we are concerned, toxicities. Uh, so to look out for whenever there is you know, a combination of these agents and maybe predict that there could be increased toxicities. Again, not a reason to preemptively dose reduce, but something to keep in mind. The other factors that might impact toxicity is, uh, so types of EBRT, uh, we discussed some of uh, them before, and you know the narrower they are, the more targeted they are, uh, they're gonna cause less toxicities. Types of rays is one other thing. I didn't spend too much time on it today, but Rays can be of different types. We have gamma rays, we have uh, protons, photons. So uh, something to look at as well. Typically your X-rays, gamma rays, electrons are have higher penetration uh, capabilities and penetrate the tumors and the tissues deeper, whereas photons are more surface level and can be a little more narrow. Past radiation exposure is important. So every organ system has a, a maximum uh, dose that's been assigned to it for how much each organ can tolerate radiation. So if you're seeing a patient who's kind of reaching those levels, might be a good idea to back off a little bit. Uh, and also depends on how much uh, dose the patient has tolerated in the past. So if the patient hasn't tolerated a certain radiation dose, might be uh, okay to like preemptively uh, reduce uh, dose reduce in that situation. Patient-related factors are always important. So um, age, comorbidities, if a patient already has, say, hypothyroidism and radiation further affects it, it's going to increase that toxicity. And then for, as far as pharmacists are concerned, uh, medications uh, are very important. Um, not only do they interact with other chemotherapy agents and immunotherapy, but there are some agents like hydroxyurea, metronidazole uh, that have the potential to interact with radiation. So uh, we should do a thorough review of that. And then one class uh, that is always left out is your over-the-counter supplements, vitamins. A lot of those are antioxidants. So making sure that we get a really good medication history on every single patient is essential. So going into our next audience question, uh, which of the following would be an appropriate reason for a preemptive reduction in radiation dose? The patient will be receiving chemotherapy while on radiation therapy. Patient received immunotherapy three months ago and had side effects. Patient previously had side effects on the same radiation dose and then D, all of the above. All right, so looks like most of you have picked up option C and that uh, the patient previously had side effects on the same radiation dose. So I do agree with the most of you. Um, definitely that's, that's something that would predict uh, higher toxicities on the same dose in the future. Uh, I like that some people did pick option D because, you know, it's, it's always uh, something to think about, uh, as I mentioned before. But again, just receiving chemotherapy or immunotherapy does not like uh, preemptively uh, want us to like dose reduce in, 
uh, in the, the amount of radiation you're presenting, but that's something that definitely needs to be on your mind when you're starting patients on it. All right, so going into the last part of our presentation, and that is the management of radiation toxicities. So there's a lot of evidence out there on the agents that you can use for management of toxicities. Um, some of them are evidence-based and some of them are just extrapolation from other disease states or toxicities. So for today's presentation, just because there is so much data out there, I decided to focus on strategies that were more preventative versus for treating toxicities. I'm going to focus on strategies that are more evidence-based and then those that involve at least one or more randomized control trial, because uh, we know that the level of evidence that these trials provide is slightly higher. So this review article came up last year in 2021 and uh, did a great job of summarizing all the uh, toxicities associated with radiation and the management for that. For today's presentation, I'm going to be talking about mometasone for radiation-induced dermatitis, Memantine and donopezil for cognitive toxicities, paliformin for mucositis, and amifostine for xerostomia or dramout. And these are some of the other agents. So going into radiation dermatitis. So topical corticosteroids are the main line of treatment for any kind of inflammatory uh, reactions related to the skin that includes radiation-induced dermatitis. So as you can see here, uh, going from left to right, these are all the agents listed in the order of increasing potency. The, uh, uh, factors that impact uh, potency, number one is the parent compound itself, but also as you can see, the strength and the formulations are very important. So mometasone, 0.1% cream uh, is lower potency as compared to mometasone, 0.1% ointment. As we increase the compounds or the formulations potency, we also tend to see increased side effects. Number one, because of increasing uh, systemic absorption uh, that causes you know, um, suppression of the HPA, uh, causing more of a Cushing's type syndrome, um, and also you know, breakdown of the skin's barrier because of excessive use and so on. Mometasone, I think, is a good agent uh, for for use as a first line agent because of its high potency, but also it's uh, more, it's a highly lipophilic drug, which tends to concentrate in the tissues versus being absorbed. So it does have low systemic availability. And then it preferentially concentrates in the epidermis versus the dermis. And that can lead to, uh, that helps, you know, reduce the incidence of dermal atrophy. So the trial that I chose to talk about mometasone for radiation dermatitis is by Hai and colleagues that was done in 2018. It studied daily 0.1% mometasone versus eucerin as the placebo emollient cream of choice. And both agents were started at day one of radiation therapy and continued 14 days post-radiation therapy. 124 adult patients with breast cancer receiving 50 grays of radiation over five weeks were included. The primary outcome was CTCAE grade two or greater reaction with moist desquamation or a grade three or greater in dermatitis. So moist desquamation is a very severe uh, skin toxicity where it leads to the physical breakdown of the skin. Patients lose a lot of uh, water and oncotic pressure. And uh, also it's very painful. So typically has to be treated with uh, opioids. So I think it was an appropriate um, outcome to be used. Secondary outcomes included time to occurrence of maximum grade dermatitis and patient re reported outcomes. 
So the trial did find less incidence of the primary outcome. So 44% for the momentosone arm versus 67 for eucerin. And this was um, a statistically significant difference. Time to dermatitis was reduced from uh, uh, 46 days, uh, um, increased to 46 days versus 36 days in placebo arm. And then generally there was lower skin toxicities in the momentosome arm. The authors did talk about the fact that uh, there were no steroid-related side effects noted during this study, but this could also be related to the short follow-up time that the study, study had of five to seven weeks. So based on this trial, and then a lot of the other trials that I've also looked at, I think it would be safe to conclude that topical momentosone does reduce acute radiation dermatitis of the breast and does not lead to as many side effects if you keep the uh, treatment duration to that uh, five to seven weeks of treatment. The next toxicity is neurocognitive toxicity, and I'm going to talk about memantine and donopezole here. As you know, NMDA receptors are our, uh, you know, excitatory receptors in the central nervous system. They're present in higher numbers in the central nervous system and are um, known to impact cognition, memory, along with some other functions. So glutamate uh, is the neurotransmitter that binds to the NMDA receptors. It leads to the influx of sodium and calcium ions and uh, you know, activates the central nervous system. So radiation does cause uh, inflammation because of which this influx of sodium calcium is higher and that has been known or related to causing a lot of this neurocognitive decline that we see in radiation toxicities. So memantine is our non-competitive NMDA channel blocker that prevents the binding of glutamate and acts as a neuroprotective agent. This trial by uh, Brown and colleagues in 2013 studied memantine for neurocognitive toxicity in 508 adults with brain metastases who received 37.5 grays of whole brain radiation therapy. Memantine 20 milligrams per day or placebo was uh, started within three days of radiation therapy and was continued for 24 weeks. The primary outcome was preservation of memory at 24 weeks per the HVLTR uh, delayed recall scale. And the secondary outcomes were time to cognitive failure. And they also looked at overall survival, progression-free survival amongst other things. So this trial concluded that the mean decline of cognitive function was, was similar between group. It did favor the uh, memantine arm a little bit, but this difference was not statistically significant. There were some other secondary outcomes that favored memantine, but there was no difference in progression-free survival or our survival or adverse events. Based on the results of this study, the, the authors concluded that the use of memantine during and after whole brain radiation therapy did result in better cognitive function. But as you can see, the primary endpoint was not really uh, reached. So I think their, their conclusions were more based off of the secondary endpoint. I did notice that the trial had a 71% attrition rate at 24 months when they tested the primary outcome. So technically the study did not meet power as well. One thing that the authors mentioned and what I agree with is the toxicity um, of you know, memantine is comparable to placebo. So it did not re uh, result in any increased toxicity. And for this very reason, and because there's no alternative agents really for this indication, uh, the author said that memantine could be considered for use in radiation-induced neuro uh, neurocognitive toxicity. Um, so again, not a very strong recommendation in my opinion, uh, but as because it did not lead to significant adverse effects may be considered. 
So the uh, same uh, author, uh, Dr. Brown, in 2020, uh, came up with this phase three trial with 518 patients, testing this new strategy called hippocampal avoidance. Uh, what it means is uh, it's a way of contouring radiation therapy so as to prevent the hippocampus from being affected. So hippocampus is a region of the brain that's associated with uh, memory cognition and sparing uh, that region from radiation might have some protective effects. In this trial, adults with brain metastases outside of a five millimeter margin around the hippocampus were included. And the authors found that uh, hippocampal avoidance whole brain radiation therapy plus memantine had less cognitive decline compared to whole brain radiation therapy only uh, plus memantine. And then after this trial, there were more trials that came up and uh, kind of talked about the fact that having these two approaches used together, uh, having a different mechanism of action for both of the strategies kind of help the overall picture and reduce radiation-induced uh, um, cognitive decline. There was an update in the NCCN guidelines based on some of these trials. And as we can see here, um, hippocampal avoidance whole brain radiation therapy along with memantine uh, has been used or is recommended to be used both in limited brain metastases and extensive brain metastases. However, the, the FDA label for memantine has not been updated yet for this indication. But um, as you can see, uh, the, the guidelines do mention it. So I guess based on this uh, guideline update, based on the, the trials that we just talked about, memantine in combination with hippocampal avoidance whole brain radiation therapy, I think does reduce cognitive decline. And as we discussed below uh, before, the, the drug doesn't have any significant adverse events related to it. So would be a, a good strong recommendation to have this on board for patients who you might expect to have toxicities. The next drug I'm going to talk about is uh, donepezil for neurocognitive toxicity again. So this agent has been extensively studied and used uh, in Alzheimer's disease. Uh, it's a cholinesterase inhibitor which blocks the or inhibits the action of cholinesterase leading to more acetylcholine in the synaptic junction leading to neurotransmission and is known to improve some of the symptoms of um, cognitive decline. So Shaw and colleagues uh, did a trial, it was a phase two trial with an N of 34, and they studied uh, donepezil for uh, improvement or, or neurocognitive toxicities in whole brain radiation therapy. Uh, and they found that there was an improvement, but again, this was a very small trial, uh, open label and lacked a control group. Based on the results of the trials though, uh, Rapp and colleagues in 2015 came up with this trial for uh, that included 198 adults with brain tumors uh, that were treated with whole brain radiation therapy or partial at least six months prior, and they received uh, donepezil single dose or placebo. Uh, so the primary outcome was a composite of cognitive assessments at 24 weeks, and the, res the trial found no difference in the primary outcomes between groups and uh, did show some improvements in the secondary outcomes. Um, including uh, recognition, discrimination, and dexterity. However, the trial did find increased diarrhea as compared to placebo. So this trial, as well as some of the others that I looked into, uh, donepezil does not, uh, did not show a lot of improvement in cognitive function. Um, you know, there was uh, different doses used in the other trials I looked at, but I think overall uh, the, the conclusion has been pretty uh, standard that it uh, does not uh, or doesn't have a great impact and reduction of cognitive decline in patients receiving brain radiation therapy. Heading to our uh, next 
agents. So for oral mucositis, uh, I'm going to talk about radiation protectors. So radiation protectors are essentially the opposites of sensitizers, right? So they reduce the damage in normal tissues caused by radiation. And the, the condition is that they must be present before or at the time of radiation for complete effectiveness. The first agent I'm talking about is paliformin, which is a recombinant keratinocyte growth factor, which uh, causes um, you know, proliferation of uh, mucosal cells and protects the barrier of these uh, tissues. So Lay um, and colleagues in 2011 uh, came up with this trial with 188 adults with head and neck cancers who received chemoradiation with uh, about you know, greater than 50 degrees of radiation in combination with cisplatin and paliformin, 180 micrograms per kilogram or placebo were used in this trials and started three days before CRT and then once weekly for seven weeks. The primary, the primary outcome was incidence of WHO grade three or four mucositis. And it was found that paliformin dis did reduce uh, the incidence of severe oral mucositis with 54% as compared to placebo, which was 69%, uh, and this reached significance. There were also some improvements in the secondary outcomes, but this did not uh, sustain after uh, multiplicity adjustments. There was a higher incidence of um, rash, flushing, and elevated serum amylases in the paliformin arm. So because this trial, um, you know, after 2011, there were a little, like a few more trials that came up just because of the positive results that these, uh, this trial showed. And a phase two trial by Brazil and colleagues showed uh, uh, no improvement in uh, oral mucositis when this agent was used. Uh, of course, the dose they used was a little smaller than uh, what was used in this trial. And then following that, another trial came up that, that did show uh, improvement in se uh, severe oral mucositis. So I think just based on the evidence that I saw, it's at this point, I think, I feel like the role of paliformin in prevention of radiation-induced radiation oral mucositis is it's unclear. Uh, while some trials did show a positive effect, we do have to consider that you know, there were side effects related to the drug and the effects were not sustained across the different trials. So I think it's a pretty weak recommendation at this point. The other radiation protector I'm going to talk about is amifostine. Uh, so amifostine is a pro-drug that you know, is activated by alkaline phosphatases uh, in, in normal cells uh, activated to you know, thiols, which is the active moiety, and then that stabilizes DNA. Alkaline phosphatases are deficient uh, in tumor cells, which is why amifostin preferentially acts inside of normal cells. A trial by Brutzel and colleagues in uh, the year 2000 uh, showed 315 adults with head and neck cancers and included radiation doses of 50 to 70 grays. Uh, daily IV amifostin infusions for 15 to 30 minutes were used before irradiation and saliva production stimulators were not allowed in this trial. Primary outcome, incidence of grade two or greater acute or two or greater late xerostomias, and then grade three or greater acute mucositis. So this trial did find that amifostine showed improvements in all the primary outcomes except mucositis. It did not compromise on anti-tumor efficacy, but on the downside, it did show significantly higher hypotension, nausea, vomiting, and allergic reactions. So in conclusion, I think amifostine, according to this trial, did show improvements in acute and chronic xerostomia, 
but I think just based on the fact that it has unfavorable side effects and you necessarily like don't want a radiation protector to have side effects, right? The, the patients are already having side effects from other things. So I think the fact that it had severe side effects related to hypotension, nausea, vomiting, makes this drug unfavorable. Also, the daily IV infusion can be very inconvenient to the patient and the staff that's administering it as well. So to add two things, uh, these radiation protectors, so both palifermin and amifostine are extremely expensive. Uh, so, you know, while starting these agents, we do have a little bit of evidence to back them up, but just the fact that some of this evidence is unclear, not as strong, and the fact that they are very costly, I think deters use of these drugs in clinical practice. All right, that brings us to our last question for the day. Based on the primary evidence discussed today, which of the following would be a reasonable option for the associated radiation toxicity? Option one, palifermin for prevention of oral mucositis, amifostine for prevention of xerostomia, donepezil for prevention of neurocognitive toxicities, and memantine plus hippocampal avoidance WBRT for prevention of neurocognitive toxicities. Right, we do have a lot of answers coming in. So I agree with all of you here. Uh, I think memantine plus hippocampal avoidance whole brain radiation therapy has the maximum evidence out of the four drugs mentioned here. Uh, one question that I had when I was like reviewing the evidence is, uh, what about uh, memantine plus regular whole brain radiation therapy, right? And if you saw the NCCN guidelines that I had put, uh, that that is part of the NCCN guidelines still. So even though the trials showed uh, improved outcomes with hippocampal avoidance, I think just putting memantine on as an agent will st is still going to help the patient as uh, proven by some of the secondary outcomes in the trials we talked about. Palifermin and amifostine option A and B, uh, some evidence surrounding it, a lot of toxicities, uh, and also it's very, very expensive. So I would always... Um, think about it when I want to like start a patient on this agent. And then Donepezo, uh, great evidence in Alzheimer's disease, but not as much in radiation-induced toxicities. This is my summary slide. Uh, please feel free to like take pictures or you know share it with colleagues at uh, other institutions. I think uh, I have seen people you know discuss these agents on Twitter and it's it's very interesting on how other institutions are using this. So having those kind of discussions uh, will definitely help uh, improve practice. Uh, one thing I do want you to take away is, even though I discussed just you know five of these agents, there is evidence out there for the other things. And if you want, I can share a link to uh, the review article that I was initially talking about. It is an evolving field. We are going to see a lot more evidence coming through. So as pharmacists, as uh, practitioners in the medical oncology areas too, I would look out for uh, those types of research. And if you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.